Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today we're honored to have as our guest Andre Ayanku, who has returned to us after a period of being Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property and Director of the United States Patent and Trademark Office. He's well known to us. Andre, for many years, was a partner at Irela Manella, well known as one of the leading patent and IP litigators in the United States, served as managing partner of IRL. Before he went to IRL, he was at UCLA, where he has the technical background for the IP work with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering, a master's in mechanical engineering, as well as his law degree. And Andre, I know I'm only one of many who personally and professionally is so delighted that with the worldwide opportunities you must have had, that you've decided to come back to Los Angeles and back to IRL. Welcome back. Well, thank you, Howard, and thank you for that uh, kind and generous introduction. It's an honor to be with you. Tell us about, you know, you go to Washington, uh, become the director uh, of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Tell us about the USPTO and the critical role that it plays in the United States economy. You know, the uh, USPTO has been around for a very long time. In one form or another, it's one of the oldest agencies in the U.S. federal government. Um, uh, You know, uh, the concept of patents uh, was included in the U.S. Constitution itself and one of the earliest laws passed by the new country right after its formation in 1790 was the first uh, Patent Act, the Patent Act of 1790. And ever since then, the government has been examining and issuing patents. So in one form or another, um, uh, that function uh, performed by the agency has been around um, from the beginning. Uh, Today, the agency has 13,000 people uh, spread across the United States, headquartered in Alexandria, Virginia, of course, close to DC, but uh, the employees are all over the country. And um, we have a budget of um, over three and a half billion dollars. Um, you know, and, and as you know, Howard, the main functions are to examine and uh, issue patents, examine and register trademarks. But in addition, the office leads the, um, the policy uh, debate and the policy discussions um, for the United States domestically and internationally within the administration. Uh, when it comes to intellectual property matters of all sorts, not just patents and trademarks, but everything, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, trade issues. Um, When it comes to IP, uh, uh, folks at the USPTO advise the administration on all of those issues. We're now at a critical time uh, with the fourth industrial revolution, with the changes that are happening a focus on some of the critical issues. I mean, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, in addition to the function it serves in terms of what we can call private ordering of patents among individuals, plays a critical role in setting policy to advance innovation uh, in the United States. So let's talk for a moment about the critical ro- how important it is the USPTO sets the right policy, advises on the right policy, Uh, to develop innovation simply within the United States before we talk about the international competitive aspects, but simply the importance for our economy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Look, there is uh, no secret that we live nowadays and we have for a while in an innovation economy. Uh, Entrepreneurship, innovation, the creation of new things, 
is uh, the core engine of economic growth and um, and job creation and the like. Um, so uh, I think uh, most uh, folks uh, recognize that and uh, believe that that's, uh, that's the case. Uh, there's lots of economic data that uh, indicates that um, uh, innovation and innovative uh, companies do ex uh, uh, much better than average um, uh, when it comes to job creation, economic performance, uh, but also for the United States uh, as a whole uh, does better uh, as a result. Um, behind that is intellectual property protection. So in order to have economic growth and job creation, you have to have an innovation entrepreneurship-based economy. Uh, and in order to have an entrepreneurship and innovation-based economy, you need to have a robust intellectual property system. So having the right uh, balance, the right intellectual property laws and systems is critical to create appropriate levels of innovation, um, to spur and uh, encourage growth in all industry sectors in the United States, uh, which ultimately contributes to our economic performance overall. You were responsible for forming some groups dealing with innovation, the National Council on, on, on Innovation, bringing to them to tell us what happened, what you've done, the issues you faced and how you dealt with them in terms of promoting the innovation economy through the USPTO. Yes, yeah, so look, uh, first of all, um, it's critically important uh, to have a general understanding for our policymakers in the United States, whether they are in any of the three branches of government, administration, legislative, judiciary, to understand the critical importance uh, a stable, predictable intellectual property system has to growing the economy. So that's, that's first and foremost. And we did a lot. I, I spoke publicly about this issue a lot. The office uh, in general uh, has a lot of programs and activities to promote uh, that general understanding um, within the United States. Um, but um, in, addition, uh, in addition to all of that, um, uh, we look to see uh, where can we do better? Uh, how can we uh, add even more people uh, into our innovation economy? And what, uh, what we found is not a surprise, but we actually uh, did economic studies to put some real numbers behind it, is that innovation in the United States is highly concentrated. It's concentrated demographically, geographically, and economically. So what do I mean by that? Demographic, demographics, for example. We did a study at the USPTO to analyze uh, the participation of women um, as, inv as inventors named on U.S. patents. And what we found, we published a study early on when I came on that looked at patents through 2016. And we found that in 2016, of all the inventors named on U.S. patents, only 12% were women. We redid the study a couple of years later and updated it to 2019. And what we found is that the number now is 13%. So certainly it's good that we're moving in the right direction, but we're really, uh, we have a real long way to go. Um, other studies have been done that talk about racial minorities and their participation 
uh, as inventors. And those numbers are even lower than the numbers I've mentioned uh, for the participation of women. Um, so that's, that's a demographic concentration. Um, there's a geographic concentration. We know that innovation in the United States uh, comes primarily from certain geographical areas. Silicon Valley is a very good example. Um, one of the oldest areas of innovation concentration uh, in the modern economy. There are others, uh, right? The, the Boston, Philadelphia corridor, the Research Triangle in North Carolina, Seattle, now, um, nowadays Austin, Texas, several others. Nevertheless, there are vast swaths of the, US, of the United States geography that does not participate nearly enough uh, and to the same level. Uh, the, uh, and so, so the bottom line is what we're left with is that effectively the United States is competing on the world stage in a worldwide, that's now a worldwide innovation ecosystem. We're competing with one hand tied behind our backs. I want to interrupt you for a moment because just to talk about the important perspective you're bringing to this, because most often, or very often, when people speak about the kind of issues you're speaking about, uh, limited participation, uh, what are called exclusivity, equity issues, or whatever, talk about it in the context of hurting those who are excluded. But the perspective you're bringing, which is really important, is that in our country today, we are all hurt by not utilizing and making available the maximum talent that exists in the population. And so it's a harm to everyone by excluding the talent. It's not simply a harm to those people who are excluded, but we need that talent in order to develop our economy uh, and to compete internationally. Uh, we need to bring in the entire population. Uh, and, and that's really a, a, an additional perspective that I think that you've, that's the way you've stated it. But I think that sometimes gets lost in talking about these issues, which only focus on those who are hurt, being hurt excluded without talking about how we all are harmed by denying ourselves the talent that's available, it's not being used. Absolutely, it's a very good point, Howard. And look, the, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, including more people in the innovation economy helps everyone. It helps the individuals themselves. Uh, being an inventor, being an entrepreneur is the most concrete, most direct way to achieving the American dream. So bringing that to as many Americans as possible has a direct impact on those individuals first and foremost, obviously. It helps the companies they work in, right? Obviously, the more inventors, uh, more creators you have in a particular company, the better the company will do. It helps their communities grow the more uh, uh, innovators and, and entrepreneurs they have in those communities. But to your point, it absolutely is critical to the United States. Look, take the whole world is innovating right now. Uh, folks have figured it out around the world that in order to compete, especially as we're embarking on the fourth industrial revolution, people have figured out that around the world that they need to innovate. And everyone is innovating and everyone is competing with us now on the most important technologies of the future, from the smallest countries to the largest. Take the largest, take China, for example. They have 1.4 billion people. We're never gonna be able to compete with them on the number of people, 
they're also a centralized economy, uh, a top-down um, uh, economy that can uh, direct at the state level where they're investing their 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 resources. So we can we don't have that either, and neither should we. Um, uh, we, we have our own system that has served us extremely well and will continue to do so. But in order to compete with that type of, um, uh, of size and, the, and, and centralized uh, focus, um, economic focus, we need more uh, folks in the game. We need, as a nation, all hands on deck. So you're absolutely right. Not only does it benefit the individuals themselves who are in it, it is absolutely critically important to the United States to maintain our competitive edge. Let me just say one more point before we, um, before we go on on that issue. There is good news here. Uh, obviously, not great news that, uh, that uh, the participation is so highly concentrated, but the good silver lining in that is that there is great potential for the United States. So there is a study from Harvard from a, a year or two ago now that indicates that if we can increase the participation uh, from women, uh, racial minorities, uh, economically disadvantaged communities and, and other underrepresented um, uh, communities, then innovation in the United States could quadruple. And that is, that would be, a, a, a tremendous benefit for the United States. So critically important that the U.S. focuses on this issue. And, right. and I did that when I was at the USPTO, uh, specifically yeah. for the reasons we mentioned. Just to talk about the sad history of some countries in this, in terms of excluding people for, the, for, for reasons. Uh, you know, by all, uh, by all measures, England should have been the center of the computer revolution because the person who was leading the way during World War II, we all know the story, was Alan Turing. And based on Turing's work and based on the people that worked with Turing during the war, there is no reason that the center of innovation in computers, which dominates the world, probably should have occurred around London and the people out of Bletchley Park. It didn't. And one of the reasons it didn't, not the only reason, there are other cultural reasons, but one of the reasons it didn't was because the England as we know, not only scorned Turing, but led him to his death because he was homosexual and refused to use that talent. And if anyone needs a dramatic example of how excluding people uh, from, from participating in the full economy hurts an entire country, then that is, that is the most dramatic. So what are we doing here? We know what we need to do. What is the UPO, USPTO and what is the country doing uh, in terms of uh, promoting the talent uh, and changing, the, adding to the demography and the geographic distribution? Well, um, so uh, the USPTO has a number of programs uh, to promote um, uh, folks from underrepresented communities and to try to grow uh, innovation from across the United States. Um, and I can go into some examples, but the um, most important initiative that we undertook um, uh, in the past couple of years is the creation of the National Council for Expanding American Innovation. I've learned in Washington, Howard, that uh, folks love acronyms. So this one is NCEAI, just rolls off the tongue. 
Um, Don't try to pronounce it. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, it has a dedicated page on the USPTO.gov website if folks want to go look at it. Um, so this council is um, uh, has, has leaders from government, academia, and industry. It has CEOs, for example, of uh, major companies from across the industrial spectrum. So it has CEOs from uh, uh, the tech industry, from uh, the biopharma industries, uh, from the automobile industry, and, and, so, and so on. Uh, it has university presidents, um, and as I said, some government leaders as well. So the idea is for this council uh, to help the USPTO create a national um, a national strategy for how to improve uh, uh, innovation um, across the board in the United States, how to increase innovation across the board in the United States and improve access. Um, you know, these are not simple issues. Uh, they are, in fact, extremely complicated and they cut across multiple disciplines. Uh, for example, there are questions of education um, at the lowest, lower uh, levels, at uh, the university level. There are questions of hiring and employment uh, and retention. Uh, there are questions of access to intellectual property mechanisms uh, and the like, and, and so much more. Um, but the idea of this council is to provide best practices and have a forum for discussing these issues. Um, we had an opening session in September of 2020, um, and the remarks from all the participants, which I found to be absolutely inspiring and remarkable, they're posted on the USPTO website if folks are interested. Well, you know, it, it, you focus on this when you talk about the specific things. For the lawyers listening, uh, those, and of course our audience uh, is lawyers, it's very important because what, what is being said here, what Andre is saying and what is true, is that individual success uh, for, the, in, for families, for people entering the economy, to the extent it rests and it does about starting new businesses, that IP protection for those new businesses is critical. That's why it's critical that there be widespread understanding within the legal community of the importance of IP protection and why there be more education and IP protection. Something very significant happened in the law schools, you know, a few years ago, uh, uh, led by the University of Arizona Law School and a personal plug where uh, my son is dean and, and, and led the charge, uh, changed the standards to permit law schools to use the graduate record exam the GRE as an entrance test, as well as the LSAT. And, and despite a lot of opposition from, from the usual suspects, as soon as Harvard came on board and other schools, it is now the standard throughout most of the United States. One of the results of this, just that simple technical change of how to, how to be admitted to students at a law school has led a large number of people with scientific backgrounds to apply and come to law school because they could use the GRE that they'd already taken, the graduate record exam, and the validity test showed it was just as good an indicator of ability uh, to perform in law school as the LSAT. But that simple technical change, making it easier for people with a technical background to apply and become law students, has had a significant impact on the number of lawyers who will be graduating from law school with technical background and the ability to do IP work. So, and, and in terms of what law schools teach, 
uh, teaching generalists to advise small businesses on the whole range of IP. So that I, I think we can talk about very specific, you were getting some examples, what you've done and we'd like to hear them, but it's a really important understanding the overarching concept to talk about these very specific steps that can be taken uh, to add to the store of demographic uh, ability to innovate. That is such a good point. Uh, the question of specificity uh, is, cr is critical uh, because look, a lot of people talk about these issues. Uh, and, you know, um, I, I know now having spent three years in Washington, uh, there is a lot of talk about a lot of issues, but ultimately in order to move the needle, uh, specific actions are needed and um, uh, specific ways to measure the results. So if you look at the remarks I gave at the opening of the um, NCEAI, uh, program last September was that I called on the council to be very specific. First of all, be specific about the problems that we face, you know, and the problems vary at different stages of one's life. You know, there are certain problems that we have um, uh, in encouraging kids to learn science and math when they're in first grade, fifth grade, and the like. There are different sets of problems that we have at the university level. And yet, and, and further still, there are different sets of problems when we hire people and retain people and promote them to positions from which they can innovate. So be specific about the issues that exist. And second, be specific about the solutions we're going to provide. You gave a very good potential solution to a specific problem. That's great. Those are the kinds of things that we need as a country to make a list of specific problems, specific solutions from those, for those problems. And the third thing I asked the council to do is to come up with a list of measurable metrics for which we as a nation can be held accountable. How have we done? Let's measure ourselves. Have we increased the numbers of uh, girls uh, who are now entering STEM uh, uh, programs? Have we increased the number of minority patent applicants? Um, have we increased the amount of innovation from uh, geographic areas in the United States that currently don't participate in? And when have we done that? What's the time frame? Be specific about the measurements that we're gonna use and hold ourselves accountable to it. And by the way, there's nothing wrong. People should not be afraid. There's nothing wrong with having a measurement that we look back on and say, gee, we didn't make it. It's important to know that so that we can make appropriate adjustments. If it doesn't work what we've tried to do, it's good to know so that we can try something else, potentially make adjustments. So, I've, uh, so, so specifically the NCAI, uh, the council is uh, uh, tasked with, and, and the USPTO is going to try to come up with those specific um, uh, types, of, uh, types of issues and recommendations. Yeah, we have been talking about innovation and how to achieve it. Uh, what we've come to understand both in this discussion and generally as Andre and I, and, and a great many people, we've all come to understand that great ideas alone are not enough. 
uh, it's not only that not enough, but reliance simply on great ideas can be deceptive because it's the ability to implement them, uh, to develop metrics, to develop specific programs and to implement the ideas and what we need that determines whether we succeed. We will continue talking about those implementation and other issues, but let's take a break. But you know, those of you listening to this program, uh, can, listening to this podcast, uh, can get one hour of MCLA credit through the Daily Journal. Let's take a short break so you can hear about how you can obtain that MCLE credit. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. The Daily Journal doesn't just feature stories from our staff of reporters. We also rely on columns from attorneys, judicial officers, and legal experts like you to inform the legal community through our perspective coverage. If there's a column you would like to write, or to get more information on writing for the Daily Journal, contact our associate legal editor, Elon Isaacs, at the email in the description of this episode. We're back now from the break, and we've been talking about specific issues. I'd like to place this in the context of, of the fourth industrial revolution and the issues that are coming up. We know what those dominant issues are, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, whole other areas that are now at the forefront of, of economic and competitive development. But one that we've been living through is the issue of 5G. Uh, who is it that won the 5G battle? Uh, which companies are winning? Which country is winning? Why is it developed the way it is? So if we think of 5G as a competition in terms of, of geographic areas, nations, has there been a winner in, in, the, uh, in the 5G competition? Well, look, uh, the 5G competition is uh, ongoing. Folks need to realize, though, that the current innovation is well beyond 5G. 5G is being implemented right now, uh, and we see it being implemented in the United States now uh, through infrastructure programs and the like. Um, but the current innovation, we're talking about 6G and beyond. Um, so in terms of the innovative companies that participate in 5G, uh, my concern is that the United States has fallen behind. Uh, there are quite a few companies active from China. Uh, there are several companies active from, the, from, uh, from Europe um, and fewer, uh, to put it mildly, from the United States when it comes to fundamental 5G technologies. So uh, there is a concern out there that we have fallen behind in 5G. Um, and as I said, it's probably too late now because that standard is already implemented and being deployed. So as a nation, we must take stock of that. And you know, we must now focus on the innovation that's ahead of us um, when it comes to 6G, 7G, um, and uh, other forms of communications. And we should be, I think uh, most people are now familiar with the vocabulary, but 5G 
is the communications technology, which we all use in Wi-Fi and other places. And it's how fast and reliable and widespread and in a world that continues to be more and more interconnected as we get into the internet of things, well, everything will be, will, will be part of the network and connected. The, the communications technology, software and hardware is critical to development. Uh, what were the weaknesses in the United States? Why aren't we doing better in this area? Well, uh, look, for a very long time, we have uh, led the world in technological development across the board, and, um, and, and there was not a close second, frankly, uh, when we look in the rearview mirror, uh, you know, beginning with the first industrial revolution. Um, in the 18th century, early 19th century, uh, obviously the, uh, uh, the UK took the lead at the very beginning, but soon after the founding of this country um, in the 1800s, we, um, we, we, we uh, gave them a good run for their money and, uh, and, and did very well in the first industrial revolution. But we haven't looked back ever since, you know, you look at what happened beyond that, you know, when you look at the developments of the late 1800s with Thomas Edison and electricity and Alex Bell with the telephone and uh, so many things uh, surrounding that and moving into the 20th century with uh, the Wright brothers and uh, aircraft uh, and then Henry Ford and the automated uh, factory lines. Um, and then beyond that, you know, uh, in the uh, computer age, you, um, you know, and, and um, uh, the development and the internet age, the development of the internet, not to mention the biotechnology age, uh, you know, with the sequencing of the human genome and then developing uh, the entire biotech industry. Uh, we, we clearly uh, had, had the lead. Well, uh, other countries around the world have taken notice and they understand now uh, what it takes. And as we enter the fourth industrial revolution, other countries are dedicated to competing mightily on those issues so that they are not left behind when we come into these uh, areas. Um, you know, in the United States, for us to maintain our lead, and I still think we have a lead in most of the areas, not all, but most of the areas, um, we have to uh, up our game. Uh, the competition is much stronger. We absolutely must up our game. We must, as a nation, both uh, invest more in research and development. We need more public and private funding of research and development labs, for example. Uh, in the old days, we used to have things like Bell Labs, Xerox Park. Um, you know, um, you know, so we, we need to uh, think what makes sense in the current environment and, um, and, and, and attend to it uh, in a research, from a research and development perspective. We need to address our intellectual property laws and modernize our intellectual property laws. We have fallen behind, for example, when it comes to things such as patentable subject matter what is within and what's without the patent system. Um, and we can get into the details of that. That's a highly technical issue. Howard, as you know, but, but since you critically important. I think it's a critical issue and you've mentioned it 
and we're talk talking about patent eligibility, and that's one of the, your main achievements, one of your many achievements during your time uh, as head of the USPTO. Huge complexities over patent eligibility because of uh, rulings by the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, but especially rulings by the Supreme Court. Uh, everyone refers to it as the Alice problem from the Alice case in terms of what is eligible. And, and uh, there seemed to be a time when fewer and fewer things were uh, held to be patent eligible, even though they appeared to be, to many people, knowledgeable in industry as highly innovative and deserving of protection, uh, especially because uh, an important thing to say, I think, is that it's not just getting the patent, uh, but it's really the development that requires enormous uh, industrial and marketing resources to make things work, that only comes forward with patent protection. So talk, let's talk about patent eligibility and what you did at the Patent and Trademark Office in terms of working on the patent eligibility issue. Yeah, so um, it, it is such an important issue in the, in the patent system because eligibility is the gateway to the patent system. You know, you, be, before we talk about all the rules it takes to have a patent or not have a patent, um, we need to know whether the, uh, the, the type of invention you have is even protectable by patent in the first place. Um, so, um, you know, well, let me say again, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just don't know how much of a background many of our listeners have. I think the general issue without getting into the technical wording here is that ideas alone are not protectable. Many people have that misunderstanding that if you've got a great idea, you can simply protect the idea. There are technical issues that make innovation, innovations patentable, we call them protectable. And that's what's at issue here in the eligibility discussion. Pardon ideas me. alone are not protectable. You need to have a practical application of that idea, of actual technology. Um, also not eligible are pure discoveries of nature. So for example, Newton's discovery of gravity, uh, that you know, gravity is not protectable by patent. Uh, but practical applications of that, you know, the fact that we're sitting on chairs, a chair theoretically would be protectable if it's, if it's innovative enough. Um, but, but in any event, so, so you're absolutely right. Those, the, the, those are the issues. It gets very difficult on the edges to figure out if you're like right on the cusp, is it actually an, a pure idea by itself or is it more practically applied and the like? And what do you do with concepts, mathematical concepts, for example? Again, Calculus by itself is not patentable, uh, but practical applications of that certainly uh, uh, should be. And, and a lot of the uh, information technology world uh, depends on innovation that's based on mathematical computations. So these are, get to be very, very complex issues. Uh, so what we try to do at the patent office is to try to synthesize the case law and issue new guidance, which we did in 2019, issue new guidance that provides a systematic analytical framework for going through all the cases out there and come up with predictable results. And, the, uh, and it's worked out really well. We have a couple of years now of, uh, of experience with it. And uh, we know uh, anecdotally that our examiners at the patent office, applicants, uh, find it um, uh, easier to use than, than the prior approach. But more importantly, since then, we've done an economics analysis of it, and the chief economist of the USPTO issued a report a few months ago uh, that indicates that the 
uh, uncertainty of examination has decreased by 44% since the issuance of the 2019 guidance. Um, and that's, uh, uh, that's really good news. Yeah, I wanna say, again, I, I, I wanna say because Andre is, is going to be modest by omission here. This issue was a major intellectual and political challenge. The practicality of it is critical to the functioning of the innovation economy because it depends when a patent, a patent application is filed in the patent office, USPTO, it goes to an examiner in the office. The examiner has to decide what are the standards that should be used whether to issue the patent. Before Andre developed his policies on patent eligibility, there was, I think it's an understatement, some considerable confusion because of the case law on the standards the patent examiners should apply. And so it delayed, created controversy, created battles within the patent office among applicants and those who oppose application. And what Andre did was synthesize an intellectual approach, a set of standards, rules as lawyers we would call them, that patent examiners will use in the midst of all of these cases to decide whether to move forward and issue the patents. And that clarification, and there's no way to overstate the complexity of dealing with an issue like this, that clarification that Andre provided by his eligibility guidelines has increased the efficiency of the patent office through the work of the examiners enormously. And he will not publicly uh, toot his own horn and say that, but I will say that from discussions with people at the Patent and Intellectual Property Bar and the Academy, this was just a major achievement uh, in terms of how the USPTO functions. Well, thank you, Howard. Thank you for the uh, kind words. Um, uh, I should say that uh, more work remains, obviously. Um, we do think that it's working really well at the patent office uh, and the examination process. Um, it, the, the courts, uh, being an independent judiciary, as, as it should be, is not bound by our guidance. So the analytical framework in the court system remains unchanged, obviously. Um, uh, and and uh, we'll see where that goes. There have been several petitions to the Supreme Court uh, to address that issue uh, on the court side. They haven't taken, a, taken it up yet. There's another petition pending right now. We'll see what happens. Uh, there's also been an effort in the legislature to, uh, to, to make a change in this area. Uh, again, nothing's happened because as you've indicated, Howard, it's really a difficult question and it's politically fraught with um, uh, all sorts of uh, divisions across industries. Uh, but let me uh, leave you with this uh, thought on patent eligibility. The statute on patent eligibility, which we uh, uh, patent uh, nerds, of which I'm a proud member of, uh, like to call it, it's section 101 of the patent code. And um, that statute was written by Jefferson and Madison in 1793. And it's word for word, unchanged, since then, there's a single word difference, which everybody agrees it does. It's not a practical difference, but the rest of the statute itself, word for word, is written by those guys in 1793. Now, I'm a huge fan of the founders, and they were absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, having said that, they still were not able to predict the internet and DNA sequencing and the and artificial intelligence and the technologies of the future. 
And since the statute hasn't changed since, despite the huge changes in technology, you can imagine why the courts have struggled with this issue. Um, so we'll see if there is there are further changes on this, uh, but there is definitely going to continue to be a debate in the courts and in Congress. Of course, Thomas Jefferson, at the time Secretary of State, was essentially the first patent office in the United States. So <laughs> we, go, we go back there. Uh, so we talked about uh, uh, the USPTO. Uh, let's take another break uh, because we've been talking about a critical issue here uh, in terms of it's in the news, it's covered in cases, it's reported on regularly, but there are a great many other issues in the legal profession. The Daily Journal covers a great many of them. Uh, let's take a break to hear what other issues the Daily Journal is now covering. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of April 12th. Though California has lifted restrictions on in-person religious gatherings, the attorneys at the center of the state's fight over religious liberty say there are more legal battles to come. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed a Ninth Circuit decision upholding the state's ban on religious meetings in homes, which attorneys called a victory. But now the question turns to masks, social distancing, and vaccine passports. Also at issue is the question of what happens to religious leaders who initially defied the state's orders and now face contempt charges. One such pastor is John MacArthur, who leads a 7,500-person church in Sun Valley. MacArthur's attorney said his next mission is to vacate MacArthur's contempt trial altogether. The county dropped one of the two counts of contempt MacArthur was facing because the, quote, legal landscape has changed, end quote. But MacArthur still faces one count for violating social distancing and mask wearing. Ventura County is facing a lawsuit from the family of a man who committed suicide in a county jail after being detained for more than two years without a trial. The complaint accuses the county sheriff and medical provider of routinely denying Carlos Lozano psychiatric care despite knowing he suffered from schizophrenia. The complaint details at least seven suicide attempts over a two-year period until Lozano was found dead in his cell on May 19th of last year. Lozano was booked into jail in May 2018 for multiple charges stemming from an incident in which Lozano collided with five vehicles, including a California Highway Patrol officer. The lawsuit seeks a jury trial and an injunction, requiring the county to cease contracting with medical service providers and to make changes to how inmates with medical and mental health needs are cared for. A U.S. district judge reversed his own ruling in a Proposition 22-related class certification. San Francisco Judge Edward Chen now says the issue of whether Prop 22 applies retroactively is still up for debate months after stating it does not. The bill effectively classified app-based drivers as independent contractors instead of employees. Uber's counsel challenged the court's finding and argued the court should reconsider retroactivity after Chen's initial ruling in January. Driver's attorneys said Uber's argument would not change the judge's ruling on retroactivity. But contrary to that belief, Chen walked back his decision and agreed with Uber. He said the retroactivity of Prop 22 is ultimately a merits question and shouldn't be decided in class certification. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're back now from the break. Uh... You know, Andre, I think one of the other things that's going on in terms of competition, and you might want to comment on it, is the ease of entry to critically disruptive technologies has never been so clear. 
I mean, a comparison, for example, the Manhattan Project to the CRISPR technology. You know, you still need a nation state to do the equivalent of Manhattan Project. But the CRISPR technology, PhD in, in the, the relevant discipline, uh, the labs are not expensive to develop. They're probably given the wealth of individuals, tens of thousands of people in the world who could finance a lab to fully use CRISPR technology to change whatever genome it wanted. Uh, hacking, cyber hacking is so critical, but a, you know, a very talented 16 year old kid in Mongolia on the internet can learn enough about, uh, about computers and software uh, to be great cyber hackers and have. So we're entering a period, you talk about the United States position, geography always favored us. We had two, two oceans, distance favored us. Uh, but a lot of the advantages we had in terms of competitiveness are gone in the digital world where basically time and space are changed in fundamental ways. And so isn't the ease of entry here, uh, less investment can develop great great disruptive technologies. Isn't that another context in which makes this more complicated to deal with? Uh, absolutely. You've identified a critically uh, important issue, Howard. There are others surrounding it. Um, there, uh, there are lots of technologies nowadays, lots of disruptive technologies nowadays that are uh, quite easy to implement uh, in relative terms. Although I should say, uh, I don't think I could implement CRISPR technology, no matter what tools you're giving me. So um, it's not the Manhattan Project, but it's still uh, quite complex. Oh, no, but, but, but anyone with, who has studied with a PhD and done some postdoc work, uh, you know, there are lots of people who could, and yeah. it's not expensive to create a lab to let them do it. Right. And that's in part part of the whole point of that technology. Um, and there are others uh, even easier to implement. Uh, so, so that's one issue. <clears throat> Another issue is <clears throat> the world has gotten smaller. And as a general principle, that's a good thing. You know, there's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas. Uh, a lot of, for example, a lot of Foreign students are educated in our schools, in our labs here, and then they travel overseas and vice versa. A lot of our students work in foreign labs and then they come here. Uh, so the cross-pollination of ideas uh, has increased. Again, as a general principle, that's a good thing uh, for the world um, as long as folks play fair. Um, unfortunately, not everybody plays fair. So on top of all of those issues, we have the uh, uh, very significant uh, concern with theft of our intellectual property um, that is very well documented. Um, so uh, we know, for example, that uh, there are hundreds of billions of dollars in international trade that is being diverted uh, uh, due to counterfeit merchandise and according to the OECD, about 85% of those goods uh, come from China and its territories. Um, there are other ways of, uh, our, of, of uh, uh, the theft of our, tech, uh, of our technology and IP that are going on, such as forced tech transfers and the like. So you take all of that in combination it's, uh, it's making uh, it more difficult for the United States to maintain our technological edge. Having said that, 
um, you know, the solutions um, are fairly evident. Number one, obviously, we must stop the theft of our IP. Okay, and um, the U.S. government for years has been working towards that in conjunction with our trade partners. But number two, we must up our game. We must increase the amount of innovation and the rate of innovation here at home. Um, as we began at the top of the program, we must have more people innovating and starting new companies. We must invest more to create more innovation in the United States, both in human capital as well as uh, economic capital. Uh, and those are just some examples. But we need to attack this problem from both sides, both the uh, prevention of the theft of our IP, but also the increase of our own innovation on these shores on a going forward basis, because the stuff that we were doing in the past will no longer suffice in the, in the newly competitive, increased competitive world. That's such an important point about so many things involving uh, competition in the United States. Uh, we've, we've always thought of ourselves, or until recently, we continue to th th think of ourselves, you know, as the leading nation in the world. We've led everyone in everything, and we're the most powerful leading nation in the world. But what you're saying is so critical. We can no longer rest on our laurels. It's not just protecting what we have, it's understanding that we're in a permanent situation where only by continuing to advance in innovation can we stay ahead. Or a variation of what the, the greatest pitcher history, Satchel Paige used to say, you know, don't look back, someone may be gaining on you. Uh, and and it, it's, a, it's a culture that promotes that constant innovation. There is no end to where we will go. So we must constantly be innovating, which is why, we're talking about the changes that you think are necessary here. That's a fundamental psychological shift, I think, in terms of the way a lot of people have thought about the position of the United States. Absolutely. Um, for all the reasons you've just mentioned, it's a fundamental shift that we need to think of ourselves as still leading, but with lots of competition on our tails. And if we look back for just a fraction of a second, Others might come ahead of us. And so we must double down. There's another critically important piece here, Howard, and that is that we are a decentralized economy, uh, an industry-driven economy, uh, which is very good for us, has always been good for us, um, and uh, will serve us, will continue to serve us well going forward, I am certain. However, other nations, uh, are very focused on the technologies of the future. And they have industrial plans, they have innovation plans. We are all familiar with Made in China 2025, 2030 plans and the like. Other countries have plans like this as well. Germany has plans and, and so on. Uh, I have come to believe that I think it's important for the United States to develop as a nation an innovation plan. Uh, it has to be... Uh, uh, consistent with our culture, with our um, uh, economic model uh, that is industry-based and industry-driven, um, and and um, uh, but 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 having a focus as a nation, so that we know what has to be done, generally speaking, both from a public and a private perspective, uh, 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 what policies need to be advanced, and where investments in general. 
should be aimed towards. I think uh, I've come to believe that that's an important next step. But of course, we've, we've done some of that. I mean, the truth of the matter is that we talk about the, the individual inventor and, and, and decentralization. In truth, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, has played a critical role uh, in major technology developments. The internet basically began as, as a DARPA project uh, and be, because of the need to, uh, uh, to secure communications in the event of nuclear attack to establish communications protocols that would continue and that developed into the internet. But we've now learned that DARPA played a critical role in the development of the M, uh, NRA vaccines uh, that are now being so effective. Uh, so we have had uh, that role. It's come out of the Defense Department. But I think what you're saying is that uh, we need, whether it's simply out of DARPA or something like it, a, a greater sense of strategy of where we are going to put resources in order to deal with, with, with these developments. For example, quantum computing. Do we not need some some essential risk capital there that essentially comes out of the government because the amounts that are involved are so great. And that's really what's called for here is strategy and government capital to help the initial development. That's what happened with the internet. It, it, it's happening in other areas. It's basically in, in addition to that existing programs that we're talking about, not a huge revolution. Isn't that, isn't that uh, absolutely right. And you've given a great example. DARPA is a very good example of what we have been, of what we've done in the past and what we're capable of. Um, you know, the space program is another great example. Um, you know, in the um, late 50s, 60s, we had, uh, the nation had what we call a Sputnik moment, right? We, we were very concerned that uh, uh, the Soviets were the first to put a satellite in space and then a man in space. Um, and uh, there was a national call thereafter uh, to uh, focus as a nation on developing a space program, which we did. And we did land a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s as President Kennedy challenged the nation to do. Um, and, and then beyond that, uh, we did the, the, the American space program uh, grew to be uh, the envy of the world. Um, and the most important thing of the space, uh, the most important outcome of the space program was not necessarily the fact that we had uh, spacecraft and humans in space. It was all the incredible technology that came from it that we're using to this day um, as a byproduct of that national focus. So there are certainly examples that we can uh, can take from the past, and we just need to think what is the next type of a space program for the United States. Uh, you know, is it quantum computing? Is it artificial intelligence? Is it even more immediate issues such as semiconductor technologies and the like, or maybe it's all of the above. But uh, that's my point about the nation needs to focus on this, these issues and identify uh, where it is that we need to um, increase our competitive edge. Yeah, it's interesting we, to mention uh, Sputnik. Of course, that was a dramatic moment. The question is, do we have equivalent dramatic moments in these other areas? As a matter of fact, I think DARPA began uh, it, it, Eisenhower was president and it's President Eisenhower who created the, the essentially the precursor of DARPA uh, as, as a result of, uh, of uh, Sputnik. Uh, so we know that we can do these things. 
but we need examples. We need the, the reality. You talk about the space program, fabulous success in the space program, but there were years when we needed to rely on rockets from Russia to bring our space people to the International Space Station. So it requires an understanding of the importance of, of how critical our success as a nation, our success as a people, our prosperity, everything that we care about really depends on our staying ahead in this innovation race. Uh, and that's what it is. Andre, you, you've been a leader in this. You were in the USPTO. You will continue to be in the private sector and bringing understanding of these needs, understanding of these issues. And in the midst of so many other issues, they sometimes get buried. But in the long run, our strength as a nation, our wealth and our power really will depend over time on how well we innovate and a critical part of how well we innovate is the kind of intellectual property protection that we provide to innovators and the kind of leadership that the government show in promoting particular innovation. Andre, thank you. you. You led the way in the USPTO. We're delighted you're back with us and thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts during this podcast. Thank you, Howard. It's a pleasure.